Torah studies. All right, this is Torah studies. Torah portion this week is who's got the name? What's happening? Akev. Torah portion this week is Akev. And we are going to explore a very powerful idea that comes out from the Torah portion. But first, I want to ask you a question. Imagine it's the four by four relay race. Okay. And you have, like, you're the manager of the team. You know, the Olympics, remember we spoke about Olymp Olympics last week? Kosher, not kosher. Yeah, was that last week? I think so. All right, not going to get into that conversation this week. However, here's the core question. Imagine you have the top runner on your team. It's the relay race, four members on the team, four legs of the journey. The fastest runner, where do you put them? First, second, third, or fourth? Are you with me on the question? First, second, third, or fourth? Raise a hand with the finger corresponding to the placement that you're going, you're the manager of the team, Strat strategizing for victory. Where do you put your fastest runner go? I'm watching, I'm looking live, okay? I see, okay, good, I'm not gonna tell you what I see. Let me look here on the screen. Hold on, let me see. Looking around, looking around. I see lots of fours. I see, I see one. Okay, Katarina's got one. I see fours. I think here we had all fours. Three. You had three. Okay. Interesting. Three. I like that. A little outside of the box thinking. Okay, good. All right. Tell. All right. One second. Tell me why you were thinking three. I'm going to repeat this. It'll, it'll seal the deal. Okay. All right, good. So Bert says the reason why he would choose the third position for the fastest runner is build your lead and then you're done. It's a cakewalk. All right. For those of you, Katarina, you said one. Tell me why you said one. You want to jump in? Why one? Because he's the fastest and everybody else will try to catch up. We'll be more motivated. Good. So you want to get off to a good start. Good. We had so many fours. Somebody jump in. Why four? We'll do it again online. Somebody from online, tell me why four. Why do you think? You're, Mark. Behind, you're behind a little bit. Um, your fastest runner may get victory for you. Uh, okay. If you're ahead a little bit. He'll make sure that it, you stay ahead. Till the deal. Okay, good. All right. I see. Look, so I think, notwithstanding the the number three that we had, and maybe there were more that I couldn't see online, but I think that mostly people would either choose one or four. Why typically one or four? Why one or four? One is to get off to a great start, right? With with uh, your fastest runner going first, you kind of set the tone. As Katarina said, you set the tone for the race. You kind of set the pace, which is going to be super fast. And conversely, the thought for number four is that your final runner should end with a bang. I'm going to ask another question. So you have your relay race team. It's your team. And four runners. Each doing laps. They pass the baton, the whole deal. Good. And your team is victorious. And they win the gold medal. Who gets the gold medal? Which of the runners should get the gold medal? 
Runner one, two, three, or four. What do you think? The whole team gets the medal. The whole team, right? That was a trick question, which tricked no one because everyone says, obviously, everyone, all four runners should get it. Why, why all four? Dr. Maxi, why all four? Give me a rationale. Because all four contributed to the victory. Good, good. So the, the, the answer is because all four were part of it. So friends, tonight, we're going to explore this from a Jewish perspective, from a halachic perspective, from a Jewish legal perspective, from a perspective of hashkafa, of Jewish, um, uh, how do you translate hashkafa? Um, hashkafa, a Jewish outlook, a perspective, a Jewish uh, vision. philosophy. Vision. What is it? Vision. Vision, right? A Jewish perspective, a Jewish vision on, on life itself. And we're going to see how Judaism deals with the question of who gets the credit, the first one or the last one or everyone. How does that work out? And we're going to find some perspective on this from a very unlikely source, from a verse that we could read a thousand times, 10,000 times, 100,000 times, and never notice this nuance. But tonight, we're going to notice the nuance. And the verse is in this week's Torah portion, which is Akev. Akev, as the third portion in the, in the book of Zavar, in the book of Deuteronomy, Akev continues Moses' final message to the Jewish people. As we know, the book of Deuteronomy, the, 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 the context of the book of Devar and the book of Deuteronomy is they're at the border of Israel. They haven't gone in yet. Moses knows that he will not cross that border. His destiny, his destiny is to pass away on the other side of the Yardin, the other side of the Jordan. And Joshua, his successor, is going to be leading them into Israel. And so all he wants to do in the last 37 days of his life is give over every ounce of inspiration and information that's critical for them to know, for the people to know, trying to convey as much as he can before his time is up. He loves the people and he wants to make sure that they have everything they need to carry on the Jewish legacy into the next generation. I'm going to show, we're going to begin with text number one on page 72. Um, for those of you here in person, you have the booklets. For those of you online, I'm going to put it up on the screen and let's get rocking and rolling. Okay, here we go. Text one, chapter eight. Of Deuteronomy, text number one. Um, let's do this. Let's ask some people online to read because the people, so the in-person crowd reading, you guys, the online can't hear. But the online crowd reading, I believe the in-person crowd can hear. So let's try it. Makes sense. Let's see if it works. I have my volume tweaked loud. Dr. Maxley, please read text number one. Let's see if this works. Observe and fulfill all the mitzvot that I have, that I commanded you on this day so that you may live, multiply and arrive in Israel where you will possess the land that God swore to your forefathers. Beautiful, thank you. So, the, the, so this is Moses speaking to the people. And he says, observe, fulfill all of the mitzvah that I command you on this day, and it's going to be good for you. You'll live, multiply, and then possess the land, arrive in Israel, possess the land. It's going to be good. It's going to be amazing. 
All you need to do, all you need to do is observe and fulfill all the mitzvah. So did anybody notice an anomaly in text number one? Wait, hold on. First of all, let me check with my in-person. You guys were able to hear that? It was good? It worked out? All right, good. Baruch Hashem. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, good. So here's my question. Text number one, this is open to everybody. You tell me what the anomaly is. What is unusual? Which word stands out as being a little bit weird, a little strange in text number one? Why does it say mitzvah instead of mitzvot? Excellent question. Sandrine had that question as well. Good. Yes. Why does it say mitzvah instead of mitzvot? What's the difference? What's the difference? Mitzvah is singular. Mitzvot is plural. And if you look at the um, if you look at the at the at the verse itself, what is the verse saying? The verse is saying Moses says, "Observe and fulfill all of the." All implies what's going to follow is plural. All of the mitzvah. Imagine somebody would say, um, imagine a mother would walk into a room and see the see the children that have been playing a board game. They're playing Monopoly. And it's a mess on the floor. Not necessarily speaking from any at all experience in my life or house. No, not at all. Just completely objective, theoretically. Right? So the mother or father would come into the room and they would say, pick up all and their, their pieces to the, to, the, to the game. And imagine the parent would say, pick up all the piece of the game. All of the piece of the game? Pieces. Plural. Grammar. Right? Ele basic grammar. So here the Torah says, Moses tells the people, call ha-mitzvah, all of the mitzvah. I want you to observe and fill all of the mitzvah. This doesn't make any sense grammatically, but it's more than that. It's more than that. When you say all of the mitzvah, call ha-mitzvah, if it's singular, so the question is, which mitzvah? Is Moses perhaps referring to a specific mitzvah that that being performed triggers all of this wonderful reward. Maybe it is a mitzvah, but then which one is it? And then what, what's the word all? Okay, so then if it's and then if it's all of the mitzvot, then how come it says it in the singular and not the plural? Essentially, that is the anomaly. This word right here, mitzvah, doesn't really make a lot of sense the way it's written. Okay, so this is not only it's not my question, it doesn't originate with me. This, this question is asked by all the commentaries. Rashi deals with it, other commentaries deal with it. We're going to begin our journey into understanding this word. By the way, you saw how we we veered away from the from the relay race and the question of who should get the gold medal. Yeah, we're going to get back to it, but we're we're looking now at a verse in this week's Torah portion, Kol HaMitzvah, all of the mitzvah, which doesn't make sense grammatically. So here we're going to introduce a commentary. Text number two. This is the Mizrahi, uh, Rabbi Leo Mizrahi. He was a commentary, a biblical commentary, who is primarily a super commentary, as you see in the, in the bio over there, a super commentary on Rashi. What does a super commentary on Rashi mean? It means that he wrote a commentary on a commentary. So Rashi wrote a commentary, but Rashi, right? Rashi is brilliant. Rashi is a genius. So we need a commentary on a commentary to explain the commentary. All right. And now we're going to analyze the commentary on the commentary. All right. Hope that makes sense. So let's go. Here's their aim. The Rabbi Elio Mizrahi. He says the following, text number two, and David. David, please read text number two. Take it away. Don't forget to unmute. There you go. The, the word mitzvah 
connotates a category of mitzvah. It is like saying all mitzvot. All right, so there you go. The Mizrahi says, no big deal. It says mitzvah, it means mitzvot. So your question was about singular or plural. He says, no, when you say mitzvah, it could either mean one mitzvah or it could mean kola mitzvot, all of the mitzvot. So he says, don't get so caught up in the, in the nitty gritty and the nuances. Don't get so grammatically correct. Mitzvah means either a mitzvah or the whole category, the whole genre of mitzvah. Kind of like, um, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example where a singular is really a plural. Um, uh, I don't know. I, I, it's not coming to me as an example, but basically saying that the word mitzvah could either mean one mitzvah or the genre, the whole collective category of mitzvah, mitzvot. So he's like, don't get caught up in that big, it's not a big deal. Kala mitzvah means all the mitzvot, it means plural. Now, Our fish. what is it? Oh, deer. Oh, deer. Or fish, yeah. One deer, many deer. Good, good. So that's an example. Very good. Right, we don't say deers. Although here you would say mitzvot, but you could all, he says you all say mitzvot, like deer, it's fine. Good, I like that. Yeah, uh, Mark, jump in. Or fish. Fish, yeah. Yeah, I prefer mine gefiltered. Triple distilled gefiltered. Fred. What? It says that uh, that I commanded you on this day, but yes. uh, Deuteronomy is just a recap of the other. So it's not something that is being commanded on that day. That... Wait, hold on. Say it again. Deuteronomy is a recap of right. what's been going on. So be saying that I commanded you on this day. Good. That's another good. That's a, that's an excellent question. That's an excellent question. So the idea that Moses is speaking to the people shortly before his passing, he's telling them basically everything that I tell you today in this recap, all of the encouragement, all of the reminders that I give you, make sure that you're going to listen. So basically, he's referring to the day that he's recapping it to the people, and he's saying today. Although we, when we read it, it means today. But you're right. Torah was given over the last forty years. Right. Starting from Sinai, there were mitzvot coming intermittently. Okay. But either way, the point is that it's, um, it was being commanded. There's a, hold on. There's a lot of noise. I hear a lot of background noise. Where, where's the background noise coming from? Let's see. Hold on. Hold on. Should we mute? Chaz and Ben, what you got? So so it's all the mitzvah refers to Mitzvot that have been observed and mitzvot that have not yet been observed. So nice. it's a mitzvah. So call ha mitzvah. For example, uh, when Joseph and I don't know if it, well, yeah, the, the B'nai Israel make a promise to Joseph to take his bones and bury them in Israel. And as of now, they haven't done that yet. So so there's a mitzvah, and I'm not. I'm, this is Rashi. Um, oh, hold on, Chazan, one second. Hold on, one second, one second. So before you introduce Rashi, I'm yeah. going to introduce. Ra we're going to get into Rashi soon. Okay. So, right. so no, but but you're going in a good direction. But hold on, I, let me let me let me set it up, and then we're going to go mm -hmm. to Rashi because Rashi is very powerful. But so, but but good 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 uh, good thought to go to Rashi. But it's constant that there's um, there's a singular and plural throughout right. the Bible. Good. So okay. that's that's the so, good. 
Good, so that's the basic answer. Now let's take a look at text number three. We have the Abarbanel. And I'm going to read the Barbanel, and then I'm going to throw a little bit of commentary as I read the commentary of the Barbanel. Barbanel is text number three, which you can find in your booklets on page number 73. Okay, here's the Barbanel. He says, it is well known among the wise that when something is complete, it is viewed as a single entity despite its many components. So when you have a unit, even though it's comprised of individual pieces, a unit could be called a single entity, a singular... Therefore, the word one and the word complete are used almost interchangeably. He says the word echad and the word shalem, he says, could be interchangeable because one is one unit. Shalem complete is a complete unit, which again, even if it's a composite, if it all comes together in one unit, you can call it one. This applies to God's Torah back inside. This applies to God's Torah as well. Mitzvot in the aggregate are one complete concept. That's what he's, look at this line. Mitzvot in the aggregate, if you take all the mitzvot together, they form one, they, there's one concept or one organism, if you will. Accordingly, our master Moses sometimes referred to, like Hazen Benjo said, sometimes referred to the commandments as mitzvot in the plural for there are many, and sometimes in the singular, for they are as singular and unified as he who commanded them. So beautiful, Barbara now says, sometimes you can call the 613 mitzvot mitzvot, or you can call them mitzvah because they comprise one will of god with different components but it's one collective will of god okay this is beautiful these are wonderful answers we're still left with a little bit of, of, of a problem and the, the little bit of a problem that we have is um you know notwithstanding the fact that we can call all mitzvot one mitzvah one unit you know moses was speaking to the people and they didn't have the opportunity to do all the mitzvot they weren't, let me, let me, let me try to frangle here. When can we, according to the Barber now, when can you call all mitzvot mitzvah? It's when they're all unified as one, but they weren't, the mitzvot were not all unified as one then. What do I, why, why not? They weren't, in the land. they weren't in the land yet. They didn't have an obligation for all of the mitzvot as one. They were partially obligated, but how could you, excellent, how could you have, called it mitzvah, like it's one single holistic unit, if essentially it wasn't possible for, for that to, to have been fulfilled. And furthermore, let me just add on to that, to that point. It, it's not even once they step over the border, they'll have all the mitzvot. Some of the mitzvot, many mitzvot did not kick in. Their obligation not kick in until 14 years after they got into the land. Why 14 years? because it took them seven years to fight the wars and seven years to settle the land. So it was a 14 year process by which they finally settled into the land. For example, Bikurim, the midst of the first fruits. So the Torah says, you're a farmer in the land of Israel, the first fruits that you get, you should give it to the Kohen, bring it in a basket. You bring it to in a basket to the temple and you say a decoration, Arami Ovid Avi, my, uh, the Aramean tried to destroy my forefather, my father, my predecessor, you go through the whole parish of the whole story of, of Jewish history and God brought me to this land and look, here are the fruits. Thank you, Hashem. Let me give it back. Let me donate it to the temple and to the Kohen and give it to you, God, uh, for as, as an act of gratitude for this land. Beautiful, wonderful mitzvah. Mitzvah did not kick in. The mitzvah was not um, obligatory until 14 years after they stepped foot in the land. So how can you say mitzvah? Now, you might say, okay, well, Moses is talking about ultimately the whole body of Torah mitzvot that at some point would all be 
active and would all be um, 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 obligatory. Okay, but they weren't there yet. And how could Moses at this point say all of the mitzvah that I'm commanding you today? You could say, well, he's commanding them about mitzvot that they can't yet fulfill. Okay, but it's still a little bit, it still seems a little bit destroying. Because of these questions and other questions, Rashi, and here we get to what Chazan Ben mentioned before, Rashi gives a second interpretation. And this is the interpretation that we're going to focus on this on today's class. It's going to get back to the relay race, and it's going to reveal an unbelievable lesson for our lives. Rashi has, a, in a second explanation, a completely out-of-the-box understanding of the phrase kol ha-mitzvah, all of the mitzvah. He says it's not referring to a single mitzvah in particular. It's not referring to all of the mitzvot. It's saying something else. Moses is standing before the people shortly before his death, and he's telling them, when you have a mitzvah, make sure you do kol ha-mitzvah, the entire mitzvah, all the mitzvah, the whole mitzvah, from beginning to end. In other words, if you start a mitzvah, make sure you complete it. That's what Moses is telling the people according to the second interpretation of Rashi. Let me show it to you. Let's do it inside. This is going to be text number four. I'm pulling up my screen right now. Um, it's on page 74 in the booklets. Here we go, Rashi. Okay, Rashi says text 4a. I'm going to read this. The Midrashic explanation, says Rashi. This is not the simple explanation. It's a bit of a Midrash. It's a little bit Midrashic. He says, if you begin a mitzvah, complete it. For a mitzvah, oh, wait, wait, okay. And here's the, here's the key line. For a mitzvah is only attributed to the one who completes it. I'm going to say that again. Rashi says, according to the Midrash, if you begin a mitzvah, complete the mitzvah because who gets the credit you see where we're going with this with the relay race who gets the credit when it comes to a mitzvah that somebody started and someone else finished who gets the credit number four the last with the one who completes the mitzvah gets the attribution of the mitzvah therefore make sure if you start a mitzvah don't drop the ball and let someone else pick it up you be the one to get it done. That's what Rashi says. And where, where's Rashi get? What does this mean? What's the context? Again, go back to text number one. Go back to the verse in Deuteronomy where Moses says, observe and fulfill all the mitzvah. What's this all the mitzvah? What mitzvah? What's all the mitzvah? All the mitzvah means from beginning to end, the whole mitzvah. Observe the whole mitzvah. Start the mitzvah and end the mitzvah. That's according to Rashi's second interpretation. This is the one we're going to focus on tonight's class. Rashi is Torah's Moses instructing the people. When you start a mitzvah, finish it, do the whole thing. Don't do half a mitzvah. Don't do two-thirds of a mitzvah. Don't even do two, don't even do three-quarters of a mitzvah. You start a mitzvah, call ha mitzvah, all the mitzvah. Get it done. Doreen. Mm. Yeah, good. Good. Doreen's asking a great question. How do we reconcile this idea with what it says in Pirkei Avot? That it's not, a, it's not incumbent on you to finish a job, right? That's what it says. You're not going to finish a job. So what does it mean here when Moses says finish a job? Are we supposed to finish a job or not finish a job? It's a good question. My understanding is in Pirkei Avot, when it says you don't have to finish a job, it doesn't mean about an individual mitzvah. It means about like the big picture. Like, you know, solving all the world's problems. Like, we're not necessarily going to fix it single-handedly, 
But the continuation is But we're still not, we still can't just say, well, if I can't finish it, then I'm done. We still have to do whatever we can. But I think what Moses is saying is about a specific, about an, an individual mitzvah, any individual mitzvah. You start the mitzvah, finish the mitzvah. But then that last line of, of that Rashi is very powerful because the attribution of a mitzvah, who gets the credit? It's the one who finishes it. And as Chazen Ben said before, we have an example of this in Torah. Powerful example of where we see that a mitzvah is specifically attributed to the one who finishes it and not the one who started it. So let me, let's bring up the screen again um, and let's show this Rashi, um, the second part of this Rashi, text 4b. Okay, text 4b, again, page 74, bottom half. For it is written, take a look at the scriptural proof, the proof text. It says in the book of Joshua, which is the, the next holy book in scriptures after the five books of Moses, it says in Joshua, the remains of Joseph, Joseph, right, that the children of Israel had brought up from Egypt, they buried in Shechem. So they buried Joseph's remains, Joseph of the Technicolor Dreamcoat, Joseph, right? Joseph, who had passed away hundreds of years prior, 200 years prior, they took his body through the desert for 40 years and the Jewish people, oh, it says, the re Joseph's remains were taken, were brought up from Egypt by the Jew, by the children of Israel. They buried them, they buried him in Shechem. So the, the, the Rashi asked rhetorically, but didn't Moses transport Joseph's remains from Egypt? So what does it mean when the verse says that the children of Israel brought up the remains from Egypt? Moses brought them up from Egypt himself. Rashi explains, yes, but because he did not complete the burial, and the Jews did, the entire project is attributed to them. Number four. The relay race, number four. Moses is the one, the night of the Exodus, right? We all know the famous story. Yeah, Joseph had promised, had, had made his children take an oath, his family take an oath that they would take his remains out of Egypt. And the night of the Exodus, Moses says, oh, we got to do this. Where's Joseph? They couldn't find Joseph. They're looking around. He was buried under the Nile. They got him out somehow, miraculously. Huh? It was Sarah Bas Usher. Sarah, the daughter of Usher, who was alive. She lived many, many long years because she was the one that told her father Jacob, her grandfather Jacob, that Joseph was alive back, way back when, when Joseph was presumed to be dead. And the grandfather blessed his granddaughter with long life. So she lived through the entire slavery experience and was there the night of the Exodus. Anyway, so she tells Moses where she notifies everybody where Joseph was buried and they locate the body, they locate the remains and they pull him out. So Moses is the one who takes charge, takes care of the remains of Joseph. And throughout the 40 years, he was in charge of the remains of Joseph. And then what happens? He passes away, right? And so he can't bury Joseph in the land of Israel. So the Jewish people take over. And then, right, the children of Israel take over. And then they bury Joseph in Shechem. And who gets the credit? The Jewish people, not Moses. Moses is not mentioned in the book of Joshua. And Rashi asks why. And Rashi says, because it's the one who finished the job. You could start the job, but if you don't finish the job, you don't get the credit. Who gets the credit? The one who finishes the job. So imagine. Imagine the Olympics or any other race. If the Olympics, you know, whatever. Imagine a race. You have four runners. The first guy, the second runner, the third runner, the fourth runner. Yeah, and they're all 
doing their thing. The batons are passed. It's it's lebedic. It's it's love. It's 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 freilich. It's lively and it's it's uh, it's a party. And you win. Your team wins. And now it's the the medal ceremony, and everyone gets up there, and you say no, sorry, runner, runner one, runner two, runner three. Thank you for the race. It was really good, but you didn't win the race. You didn't cross the finish line. There's one person who crossed the finish line. I'm sorry. Oh, oh, you ran in the race? Sure, but you didn't win the race. The last runner um, won the race. I'm sorry, the goal, we only have one gold medal. It's going to go to runner number four. We would never do that, right? That's why when I asked who should get the medal, everyone said, everyone, right? All, all the four runners, the participants should get. One team, <laughs> one team for all. The four musketeers. Yeah, nonetheless, according to this now, it seems that Rashi's telling us that no, it only goes in the language of Rashi. Um, you only refer to a mitzvah by the one who completes it. It's, a, it's by the one who finished, who finished the job. They get the credit. So it seems a little bit strange. It's interesting. We have a, uh, we, there's definitely a, a precedent with Moses, with Joseph's remains carried first by Moses and then buried by the Jewish people. And it's attributed to the Jewish people, not Moses. And we say because Moses didn't finish a job. But it still sounds a little strange. The truth is, the truth is, there's a bit of a, there are conflicting sources on this. I know, right? Some say, some say. There are conflicting sources on this. See, we presented now one side of the argument. One side of the argument is it goes by the one who finishes it. What we're about to do now, I'm going to give you three examples. One in history and two in Jewish law, where we see that we do give credit to the one who starts, even if they don't finish a job. And then we're going to be left with the question, so which one is it? Do you give the credit to only the one who finishes it or even to the one who started it, who got the ball rolling. That's where we're going to be with this, with this, um, with this class. We'll be with a bit of attention with the question. We'll resolve it, and then we'll walk away, hopefully, with some life lessons. That's, just the, that's the arc of conversation for the next 20 minutes or so. Make sense? You guys see where we're going with this? Yes? So let me, let me recap what, what, what we did until now in about 30 seconds. And then you're going to wonder why we needed 40 minutes, but whatever. It's 30 seconds. Quick recap. So we started off by talking about relay races, and who should run first, who should run last, who should get the credit. We had a conversation about that. Then we spoke about a verse where Moses says, observe all the mitzvah. Some say it means the mitzvot. Some say observe the whole mitzvah means from beginning to end, because you don't want to start it and have someone finish it, because then they're going to get the credit. And where do we see a precedent for someone starting it and someone else finishing it, and the finisher gets the credit? The remains of Joseph. Moses started it, the people finished it, and they get the credit. So we're left, see that? I told you 30 seconds. That's it. Look at that summary. So we're left with this idea that you go by the one who finished it. But now let's present the other side of the coin because we love doing that. Um, but before we present the other side of the coin, let me take a quick look at what we have over here. David says, oh, I'm looking back. This is a little bit of a uh, walk down memory lane. David says, mitzvah singular. Good, that was the question. Um, David said, uh, this day means each day. Yes. Um, gematria. Good. 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 We're going to leave gematria. The mitzvah was never started. Excellent. Oh, <laughs> David's asking a great question. Yeah. David's asking a question. He's saying, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Dr. D, he's asking a question like this. 
you say that the one who finished the job gets the credit. But if there was no one to start it, then the, the finisher couldn't have finished. Right? David, that's your question, right? Where are you, David? Why can't I see you? Oh, there you are. I can, I can almost, <laughs> there you go. I see your thumbs up. <laughs> Perfect. Um, yeah, so, so David's question is, one second, one second, one second. Rashi is, is, is trying to argue that the, the guy who started it, okay, but he didn't finish it. So you go by the one who finished it, the, the first guy loses the credit. But the guy, if no one started it, no one could have finished it. If Moses didn't get the remains, then the Jewish people couldn't have finished the job. That's a good question. Hold that question because we're about to present the other side of it. You ready? Here we go. Who built the holy temple in Jerusalem? The first holy temple was built first by Solomon. Huh? Solomon. King Solomon. King Solomon. Okay. Who was King Solomon's father? David. King David. Good. Excellent. Does King David get any credit in building the temple? No. No or yes? We have a mix really. Okay. Let's take a look at some sources. Let's take a look at some sources and let's see. So text number five. The Mechilta says, interestingly enough, the Mechilta says, hey, oh, by the way, before we get to the Mechilta, let me just explain something. King David should have built a temple. I mean, theoretically. But when he wanted to build a temple, he asked God, he, he conversed with God, let's do this. God said, you have too much blood on your hands. Too much blood on your hands, even though it was important and necessary for Jewish protection to fight all these wars. And David was a general back in the day. Bottom line is the temple was a place of peace. And it's not right that a person who had such a violent, even if it's justified, such a violent um, life, violent, whatever, such a, he took li uh, um, lives, doesn't make sense. It's not right that that person should build a temple. So what did he do instead? He didn't build a temple, but what did he do? He purchased the temple mount. He purchased all the raw materials for the temple. He got everything. He sketched it out with God, he, the whole thing, but he didn't actually build it. So take a look at, the, now that's my intro. Now let's take a look at text number five from Mechilta. Listen to this. From the verse, from the book of Psalms, it says, a psalm, Mizmar shir Chanukah tahabayat ladavid. A psalm, a song to dedicate the house of David. It calls the temple the house of David. So ask the Mechilta, why is the temple attributed to David? It's the house of David. Did David build it? Solomon built it, as the passage states, and Solomon built the house, right? So what's going on here? Solomon, David didn't build it. Solomon built it. So why is it called a house of David? Now you could say, well, because King David wrote Psalms. So he wrote a house of David. Okay, all right, fine. But we're not going to use that answer. We're going to go a little bit deeper. The Mechilta says the following. Rather, because David was deeply committed to building the temple, it is attributed to him. Because he was so invested, he was so desiring to build it, I'm going to massage my idea into this Mechilta because he started the process. I know it doesn't say that, but work with me here. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of working. I'm, that's the angle that I'm going. Because he started it and he was invested in it, it's called David. So what does this show us? That even if there's a relay race, and even if the last one is the one who finishes the job and builds the temple, who also gets some even slight measure of credit, the first guy, oh, 
different opinion than what we had before. Rashi said, when it comes to a mitzvah, right, it only goes by after the one who does it. You started it, nah, you didn't finish it. Get out of here. It's the guy who did it, right? Moses carried the bones for 40 years. Doesn't count. It's only the Jewish people that actually bury the remains of Joseph. They get the credit. Okay, that's one opinion. Now we have what seems to be a sense that you go by even the one who got it started. Let's you give, I want to give you two more examples. And this is now where we get into, I said before, we're going to go another historical event. We're going to use a historical event and two examples in Jewish law. Here we go. Let's talk about real estate. Let's talk about houses. Strong market nowadays. That's what they tell me. Oh, can't even buy a house even if you wanted to, right? Oh, strong market's very strong. Great time to sell, but then where are you going to live, right? <laughs> Unless you have another place, right? It's good to sell now, but you know you can't buy anything. So might as well stay put and supply and demand the whole deal. Okay. Or so they tell me. Imagine this. Imagine Ruvain. We're going to use three people, Ruvain, Shimon, and Levi. That's what we do when we have theoretical names where you go by the tribes, Ruvain, Shimon, and Levi. Ruvain has a house. And Ruvain wants to sell the house. He's looking for a buyer. Shimon comes to him. Shimon's a broker. And Shimon says, I got a guy. I got a guy for you. Shimon tells Ruvain, I have, a, I have somebody who wants to buy him. His name is Levi. Aha, you're with me on this. Ruvain has the house. Shimon is the guy with the, with the idea. I have a guy. And Levi is the potential buyer. And Reuven says, you know what? Thank you very much for letting me know about Levi. I don't like Levi. I'm not going to sell him the house. I don't like him. Uh, by the way, am I advocating that you shouldn't like Levi? No, you should love Levi. You should like Levi. But this guy, Reuven, doesn't like Levi. So he tells Shimon, I'm not going to sell it to Levi. I don't like Levi. Are you with me so far in the story? So Shimon says, all right, I tried. And he goes home. Guess what the next phone call is from Ruvain? To Levy. Yeah, you knew what was happening. Of course he likes Levy. You thought he really didn't like Levy? He loves everybody. He loves Levy. Especially when Levy's going to buy his house. So why did he tell Shimon no? Unmute yourself if you can tell me why he told Shimon no. Commission. Right? Just make him the commission. There you go. Right? Right? Happens all the time. So listen to this. So Ruvain told Shimon, Levy, get out of here. Then he calls Levy. He says, Levy, I hear you want to buy. Are you in the market for a house? Just asking. Levy says, sure. The deal is done. And now the, 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 the house is sold to Levy. And now Shimon goes to the rabbi. And he says to the rabbi, Ruvain's a liar. And he's a cheater. And he's a thief. You know what we call that in Hebrew? In Yiddish. Hebrew Yiddish. A ganef. He's a ganef. He's a ganef. He stole my commission. I had the idea for Levy. He told me no. He lied to me. Then he called Levy and he sold him the house. I deserve a commission. You know what Halacha would say? What do you think Halacha would say? He owes the commission. 100% owes the commission. 100% owes the commission. You can't do that. You can't do that. You can't fool around. But let me give you a twist. Let me give you a twist. Even that wasn't so simple. I'm just telling you the Halacha. But now I'm going to give you a twist. You ready? You guys, everyone's health cup. You guys got, got this? I know we're deep into the class, but health cut for a second. Match, same scenario. Ruven has a house. Shimon gets on the phone, says to Ruven, I know you're selling. I got a buyer. His name is Levy. And Ruven says, no, I'm not interested in Levy. I don't like Levy. And they hang up the phone. Now Ruven calls Yehuda. Ah, fourth person. Ruven, Shimon, Levy, now Yehuda. Yehuda is also a broker. 
a real estate guy. Ruven calls Yehuda and says, can you broker a deal for me? I'm going to give, no, I'm going to give you commission, pay you full, pay the, pay the commission. But he likes working with, with Yehuda. He likes working with his, his, his guy. He says to him, call Levi and see if you can make a deal. He makes the deal. He gives the commission to Yehuda, to his guy. <laughs> okay, so, so yeah, you're with me on this. So the first scenario was he cut out the, the, um, the broker altogether. The second case, he didn't cut, I mean, he cut out the original broker, but he ultimately paid a broker. He paid a guy to get his thing. For you paid a guy the commission. You with me? Yes. Now Shimon comes to the rabbi, to the court, to the Betin, to the Jewish court, and says, "He it was my idea. He took my idea, gave it to another agent, gave it to another broker, gave it to another um, yeah real estate agent, and I I I want a commission. Still not right. He didn't save all the commission. Sorry, he didn't circumvent." Right, all commission. He paid a commission, but I want I want my cut. I brought up the idea. So what's halach on this one? Do you pay? He already paid his commission. Was it three percent? How much? What what are, what do agents get? Three percent, five percent, depends. Okay, depends. fine. Whatever. Okay, let's just use a round number five percent. So so he already paid five percent. Said, but now the other guy, the original broker, says you should pay me. So what do you do? What's halach on this? Let me share with you the text. Let's share, let's look at inside. This is th these questions have come up over the centuries, over the millennia. These are questions that are very well dis discussed in Jewish law. Let me give you the bottom line. Okay, here's the bottom line. Text number six. Okay, text. Oh, by the way, who is this? The Rama, Rabbi Moshe Esulis, Shulchanar, Code of Jewish Law, right here. Ruvain. I even gave you the same names. Ruvain had a house to sell, and Shimon, an agent, proposed to sell it to Levi. Ruvain replied that he doesn't get along with Levi and he doesn't want to sell it. So if Ruvain then sold the house to Levi through a different agent, who I called Yehuda, Ruvain, listen to this. What's the halacha? Look at it right here, black and white. Ruvain must pay Shimon a commission. He already paid a commission to Yehuda. Pay another commission. You with me on this? You cut out the first guy. You went with another guy. You got to pay the first guy. Why? The implication here is because he was the one that first brought up the idea of Levy. Okay. Now, you might be scratching your head and saying, what, what, what is this? I can't choose my own agent. I have to go with the first guy. What if I don't like the agent? I have to go with the first guy. Okay. It's a good question. But just before we question it, let's just take a second to absorb it. We're absorbing it. We're absorbing the information before we question it. And we're saying, okay, so here's what's, what's happening. There was one agent that said, that suggested it. You told the agent a lie. You said you don't like Levy. It wasn't really about that. You just took the idea, gave it to another agent. That other agent made the deal. Halacha says, it's not right. You messed over the first guy. You took away his commission. You got to pay a commission to the first guy. Now, how much commission? Text number seven. The Noid, the Biyuhud. I love learning halacha with you guys. I love how, how sweet is this on a Wednesday night to be able to learn Naida Behuda with you together. Mm -hmm. Text number seven. It's it's like it, it's it's Ganeiden. This is paradise, what we're doing right now. The you know, um, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I, I um I had the honor of serving with the Naida Behuda's descendant. Nice. And he told Rabbi me Hes 
a, a personal story. So hold on. Well, that, wait, wait, wait. So the story is really quick. No, no, no. Hold on. Chazan, Chazan. We, we mamash have to blitz through this. Right after the class, we're going we're gonna to do the story. That's going to be okay. the key. All right. That's the, that's the dessert after the class. Okay. So take a look at text number seven. The night of the says, in my humble opinion, right, near Lafianias Daiti, according to my humble opinion, Rabbi Moshe Israelis, the Ramah, was referring to a percentage of the commission, not the whole commission, for the first guy. For certainly the second agent also has a claim to the commission. Therefore, they're each entitled to a portion. So just to clarify, you give the second agent, Yehuda, you give him the commission, but the first guy says, but I brought up the deal. I was the first one that brought up the deal. Halacha would say you have to pay him a commission, not the full 5%, maybe 1%, 2%, whatever that is, you'll figure it out with, with the rough, but, but you can't just cut him out. It was his idea. He needs to get some credit. Now, I need to tell you another instance, another instance, instance another situation that is similar. What about Shadchanis? You know what Shadchanis is? Shadchanis. You know what a shatchan is? A shidduch. Let's start with, with words here. A shidduch means a match. A match. Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Buy me a fine, catch me a catch. Shidduch is a match. A shatchan is a matchmaker. Shadchanut. Shadchanus. I don't know. Saying in 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 uh, shadchanut. No maybe. other way to say it. Shadchanus. Shadchanus means the gelt that you give, the money that you give to the matchmaker. It's, this is a very special thing. In fact, breaking news, I don't think anyone here knows this. Um, there's no way that you would know this unless you have my phones tapped, which is also possible at any point in time. I was approached by Kahut Publication Society, the Chabad publisher up in Brooklyn, to write a book on the idea of Shadchanis and Shadchan. There's an incredible discourse from the Alter Rebbe, from the founder of Chabad, about the role of a shadchan and about how a shidduch, the punchline is, a shidduch has to come through deception. Why? Because it's such a holy light. I know I'm giving, giving away too much right now. It's too much too fast. But such holy light for a shidduch to be brought into the world, it has to be smuggled in, in very, um, shall we say, um, devious means so that's why a shadchan is actually is allowed to say things that aren't you know whatever you figure it out you know it's a perfect match really sure maybe anyway but back to the story there's a huh surreptitiously surreptitiously now so there's a there's an age-old custom that almost is halacha a shadchan you got to pay you got to give shadchan a skelt you got to give money for the shadchan someone makes a shidduch someone suggested the boy the girl the match Puts it together. You got to give money. It's a skula. There's, I cannot tell you how many stories there were about people that had challenges, whatever. And they go to the, to the rabbi, to the mystic. And the mystic says, did you pay the shatkin? No. Make sure you pay the shatkin. You don't mess around with that stuff. But getting back to the story. What happens if one person suggests something? And it doesn't go anywhere. And then another person suggests it. And it hits. The same, the same, the same match. So who do you give shatkin skel to? Are you with me? It's the same question. With the real estate, who do you give the shadchanas? Who do you give the money to? The first one who suggested the match and it didn't go anywhere, or the second one that followed through. And sometimes you can have three or four shadchanim involved, and maybe they all suggested the same name. So you, who who do you give? You know what the answer is? You give them all. You give them all. That's the that's that's the age old custom and tradition. Tradition. You give every all the shadchanim that bring it up. You give them a little piece. Maybe the last one that saw it through that that was. 
you know, hand-holding, so to speak, to the shidduch to make, make sure it happened and, or to help it happen. Maybe that, you, that the last shatlin you give the bulk, but you give something to everybody. So back to the story. So we have now another example of where you give the one who started it, even though they didn't finish it. So you have King David who started building the temple or started the preparation for the temple who gets some credit. It's called the house of David. You have the case of, of, of real estate where there's one agent and a second agent. The first agent suggested it. The second agent made the deal happen. You give some percentage, a commission to the first agent, right? To the first runner. And in the case of of Shatchanis, of a Shatchan, you give some money to the first one, even though they didn't finish it. Just to show you this text inside very quickly about the about the about the Shatchanim, take a look at text number eight. Um, it seems to me, as I've ruled on many occasions, that if the initiator of this match failed to secure the deal, I love that, secure the deal, and other matchmakers secured it he is entitled to a finder's fee only if the others did not conceive of the match oh i'm sorry this is answering the question all right hold on whoop slow it down slow it down getting ahead of myself ahead of myself so hold on one second let me present the question then let me answer with that text so the question is so which one is it we had rashi's opinion before that says you only go by after the you only go by the last one who gets who seals the deal you you give credit to the final one who crosses the finish line that's the one who starts the mitzvah ah, Get out of here. It's the one who finishes the mitzvah. That's where it's at. And then we have all these other examples of people who started things and get credit. David started the temple. He gets credit. The guy with the real estate deal gets credit who initiates it. The matchmaker, the first one who came up with the idea, they also get credit. So we see you do give credit to the one who initiated. So we're left with a question. Which one is it? Is it that you only give credit to the, to the last one who finishes it or to every helper along the way? Do, who gets the Olympic gold or the gold medal? The fourth runner or one, two, three, and four? What's the answer? Here's the answer in short, and then we're going to draw a personal lesson and we'll close it. The short answer is like this. If the first initiator, well, initiator, if the initiator did not contribute anything substantial, let me explain. If everything could have happened without that first initiator, for example, in the real estate, if, um, you know, Ruvain is looking to sell his house and Shimon says, hey, I got a buyer, Levi. If Yehuda, if the second agent, knew about Levi also, and he would have suggested Levi. And so the first guy, the first agent didn't really make anything happen that couldn't have happened otherwise, then he does not get a commission. You with me on this? In other words, if the only way the seller of the house knew about the potential buyer and then told the second agent about it is because of the first agent, if that's the only reason he knew the name Levy, then you, you have to give the first guy the commission, even though he didn't actually, it's a referral fee. But if you don't need the referral because you know about the guy anyway, then it doesn't count. So now we have more nuance in this and there's no contradiction. In all the cases you look at, the one who started it or the other participants, how necessary was it? So for example, in a shidduch, in a, in a, in a match, if the other shatchanim know about, the, 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 if the other matchmakers know about these two individuals and they don't need the first one to suggest it, then the first one indeed does get cut out of the shatchanah skelt, of the money, because they're not adding anything. And this is what we have in the text that I started, and now I'm going to finish, and then we're going to get to the personal lessons and close it out. Text number eight. 
It seems to me, as I've ruled on many occasions, says Rabbi Yaakov Pappers, that if the initiator failed to secure the deal and other matchmakers secured it, he is entitled to a finder's fee only if, here we go, the others did not conceive of the match on their own. In other words, if, if others are carrying the first guy's idea to the, to the finish line, you're carrying that guy's idea, he gets a cut. But if they had their own idea, they didn't need that guy's idea, they had their own idea, then there's no fee. In that case, because the initiator contributed the idea, you know, if, there, if, if, if that's where it did come from, then he is entitled to a fee in accordance with local custom, though he failed to complete the deal. However, if the subsequent matchmakers thought of the match on their own and were unaware that the first matchmaker had thought of it previously, the first matchmaker did not contribute anything to the match. Had they not come along, his initiative would have been forgotten. Therefore, I see no reason for him to collect the fee. If the other Shatchanim said, hey, we have a great idea, and you're the parent of the child, you're like, oh, some other guy had that idea, but he just he just said the idea and then walked away. And that now and another Shachan has the idea, and they run with it, and they put it together. You don't have to go back to the first guy, Yankel Shmerel, the first, the first guy, the first matchmaker, because he didn't, he didn't finish it. He, didn't, he just had an idea. But it did. So the litmus test is like this. Could the, the, the finishers or the finisher, could they have done it without the initiator? If the answer is yes, then the initiator doesn't do anything. If the answer is no, then the initiator is important. Going back to the relay race. And this was mentioned before in the comments. I think David mentioned it. Can runner number four cross the finish line without runners one, two, three, one, two, and three? And the answer is no, right? You had to pick up on the momentum of the, the, or after the ground was covered by the first runner, first runners. Therefore, it's material to the victory, and therefore they get the credit. What about Moses and Joshua? How come Moses got cut out of, of the credit of carrying Joshua's bones? The answer is because Moses didn't have to carry Joshua's bones. The people would have carried Joshua's bones. They only gave it to Moses because he was Moses, right? As the Talmud says, which I'll share with you a text right now. Very quickly, the Talmud says in text number nine, if Moses had not transported Joseph's remains, would the Jews not have transported him? Does the verse not say in the bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried in Shechem? They said, leave him. It is more honorable for him to be handled by an extraordinary person than by ordinary people, which means that Moses was not essential to the transportation of Joseph's bones. It's just the Jewish people were going to handle themselves collectively as a nation. It's just there was Moses. So they said, who, should, who better to carry Joseph than Moses? But it's not like Moses was the initiator without which no one would have come up with the idea to transport the bones of Joseph. Does that make sense what I just said? Yes. It's akin to the, to the real estate deal where... Everyone knows the buyer, Levy, is looking for a thing. So the first guy that suggested it did not add anything, you know, out of the ordinary. So here Moses also, although he physically was involved in it, but even without his involvement, it would have been done. And therefore, he doesn't get the credit. So we have a bit of a nuanced approach as we close out tonight's class. And we walk away in a moment with a lesson. And what's the nuanced approach? Like this. When it comes to a mitzvah, here's two, two lessons, maybe three lessons. I'm not sure yet. When it comes to a mitzvah, we'll see. When it comes to a mitzvah, What's the message? Start the mitzvah and finish it. Ideally, you start it, you finish it. That's it. That's the first lesson. Second lesson. If you start it and you don't finish it and someone else finishes it, yeah, you might get the credit. You might not get the credit. It depends on how much they picked up, how much they needed your participation. But either way, they're for sure going to get the credit. So therefore, revert back to rule number one. 
finish the job, right? Don't risk getting cut out of the commission. Not like we do a mitzvah for the commission, by the way. We do a mitzvah because it's the right thing. But if it's the right thing, then do it, right? And Doreen said, but we don't finish a job. Okay, but this little piece of the job we should finish, right? We may not be able to finish single-handedly the whole job, but this piece of the job that we started, we should finish it. This speaks volumes to how we live our lives. We've all taken resolutions. New Year's resolutions, birthday resolutions, random Wednesday night, July 28th, 2021 resolutions. We take resolutions all the time. You know, tomorrow I'm going to do this. Starting from today, I'm going to do that. That's it. We have all these big ideas. And very often, or sometimes, could happen that we end up losing steam. We got excited about something. We took a new commitment. We were all gung-ho. Yes, this is going to happen. And it's going to be different this time. And then as time went on, somehow we lost steam and we dropped the ball. So tonight's class is hopefully, hopefully some words of inspiration on this very topic. Don't drop the ball. Don't drop the baton. I think I literally ended last week's class with don't drop the baton, but it's the same. It's not the same message. It's a bit of a different twist to it, right? It's a bit, it's a different angle tonight. It's the message here is don't lose sight of the goal. It's not easy to run the whole race and cross the finish line. It's not easy. No one's saying it's easy. It's very easy to get started and then to lose steam. And then hopefully somebody else picks it up. But as Rashi tells us, and as Torah tells us, even if we might get credit for the one starting it, let's get credit for the one that finishes it. Right? Let's get credit for the one. I'm not saying we should cherry pick mitzvot, which means like, at least we used to call that in hockey. We used to play hockey in Pittsburgh. I grew up in the 80s and 90s. Mary Lemieux, Yarmir Yager. I don't know if you're a hockey fan, but these were like the guys. Anyway, the, the Penguins. So cherry picking was, you know, when you stand in front of the other team's goal, because we don't have icing when you're playing with kids in a park. There's no icing. Again, this is very, I'm getting very techni technically hockey here, technical on hockey. But you could stand in front of the other goal and then somebody passes it to you and then boom. Like cherry picking. You're like right there, or basketball. You're like under the hoop the whole time waiting for a pass to finish it. It's like, no, you got to run up and down. So not suggesting that we wait for other people to drop the mitzvah and then take it home, right? Cherry picking a mitzvah. No, we should start the mitzvah and then we should continue it. Doesn't mean we can't pass. It's good to get other people involved in a mitzvah to share. But sometimes there are mitzvot that we're the most well-suited to finish the job because we started it. So I'll give you an example that the Rebbe gives. Imagine like a social mitzvah. When I say social mitzvah, let me explain. Like um, caring for an elderly neighbor, somebody in need in the community. So you develop a relationship with them. You know, you have a sprach, you have a relationship, you have a, you know, a, a, a rapport, rapport, is that the word? Rapport with them. So you call them and you... You shop for them and you bring them food and you cook. That's a whole thing. So to, to tell the person, you know what? Someone else is going to start doing it. It's not the same thing. Why? Because they're used to you and, and, and it's, it's been going in a certain direction. And so this is an example, again, an example that the Rebbe gives where it's important that the person that started it should finish it. Yeah, sometimes it could be that it's seamless transition between one and another in the same mitzvah. But we were encouraged to not necessarily, you know, drop out, tap out when it comes to a mitzvah, but re rather see it through to the end and, uh, and, and finish it. And finally, 
Yeah. So Doreen's asking a practical question. What happens if physically we can't we can't finish responsibility? Yeah. Obviously, if you can't do it, you can't do it. But the as the Rebbe says, it's in one. It's in it's in uh, it's in one of the texts here. The Rebbe says sometimes you make a chesh, you make a calculation. I can't do it. But how do you know that your calculation is a liba de emes is really true? I'll show you. You know what? If you mentioned it, let me show you that text. It's it's a powerful text. The Rebbe says in text eleven. Take a look in the in the in the booklets, page seventy nine, text eleven. Self-love and the desire to choose an easier task can sometimes blind us into assuming that the Torah requires us to retire from our current obligations. You see that? A person might say, Torah, I can't do it. And now that Torah would tell me to drop it because I have too much. But how do we know that that's real and not self-love and the desire to, to get out of something difficult? If we examine and re-examine carefully and objectively, these assumptions might be proven wrong. The Rebbe says, be very careful before we just drop a good deed saying, I can't do it. I, again, I'm, I can't tell you whether you can or I can't, you know, I, who, no one is to tell anyone else what they can or cannot do. It's up to us. But the Rebbe says, just FYI, be careful when you make that decision. Like, you know what? I can't do it anymore. And I'm justified in not being able to do it anymore. Just be like super duper careful and just check in maybe a few times to make sure that that's really true and not an excuse to get out of something difficult. Again, this is not, a criticism, this is just a perspective that you asked and the Rebbe literally addresses in this text. I want to conclude with the final message that the Rebbe shares in this talk. And that is Mashiach, right? Mashiach, it's been, it's been a while. We've been waiting for Mashiach for a while. We've been in exile for now 1950 years plus. So Mashiach, we all want Mashiach. We dive for Mashiach. Even if we don't think we want Mashiach, everyone, everyone wants Mashiach. Mashiach is a better world. There's no one that doesn't want that. Everyone wants Mashiach. So the question is, do we say, look, who are we to bring it? You know, it'll happen when it happens, and, and that's it. The best we could do is what we could do. That's one approach. That's the approach of passing the baton. The Rebbe says we have to be much more dedicated than that. Our perspective should be, it's up to us to cross the finish line. It's up to us. Unlike what it says in Pirkei lo Alecha it's not upon you to finish your job. The Rebbe said it is upon us to finish a job. And I want to end with this text. And this will be the last one. I think I said I'm going to end with the text probably three or four times. But don't hold it against me. This is it. Here we go. Um, text 12a. Although Jews in previous generations were more spiritual and more observant in Torah Mitzvah than our generation, nevertheless, the mitzvah is attributed to the one who completes it. The redemption will come in the merit of mitzvah performed by Jews in this generation who will complete and conclude the task on the eve of Mashiach. This should indeed, it does encourage each of us to increase our observance of Torah mitzvot, thereby hastening our redemption by the righteous Redeemer. Um, and it is quite possible that after a lengthy period of period on the job, the Rebbe says in 12b, we can grow lax. We might figure that it is time to hand the reins to another, and we will offer aid and counsel. We'll be um, consultants. In these moments, remember the Torah's instructions. If you began a mitzvah, complete it. Since you began the work of spreading the wellsprings of Torah and Hasidus, it is your obligation and privilege to continue and to complete the task. And when we resolve firmly and truly to continue the task of disseminating the Torah in general, Hasidus in particular, God will aid and empower us to overcome our difficulties. Together with all Jews, we will conclude the task and usher in our righteous Redeemer verily and speedily in our times. And let us say, Amen. So what's, what's the final message? Individually, we have many mitzvot that we're doing Let's not stop. Let's keep on doing them and, and complete our tasks. And our good resolutions, we should see them through and be encouraged to see them through. And on a larger level, it's up to us to bring Mashiach right now. 
Yes, the other ones ran a great race, but it's up to us to cross the finish line. And let us not say, well, I was past the baton. I can pass it to someone else. No. If we started it, let's finish it. Let's bring Mashiach now. All right. Thank you for joining me tonight at Torah Studies. I hope you enjoyed it. I, I personally, you can probably tell, I personally love tonight's class because we had, you know, biblical analysis, multiple commentaries. We spoke about sports a few times. We had some questions in Jewish law. We had real estate. We had Shadchanis, Scout. It's, it's flying. We had Anoida Yehuda that we're talking about, and we're going to hear a story soon about that. And, um, and, and, and a message, a powerful message about the idea of perseverance. Really, grit and perseverance to see things through. May we all have the grit and perseverance to, uh, to finish a job. All right. Let's hear the story. Chazen Ben, take it away, and then we'll open up the so, so I'll be real quick. Um, I had the honor and great privilege of serving with Rabbi Saul Landau. I don't know if the explanation of the note of Yehuda, his last name was Landau, and he lived in Germany the same time as Moses Mendelssohn. And there's a story of their meeting. And so Nota Yehuda means known among the Jews or known in, Ju in Judah or Judea, right? And, and Noda means known or well-known. And so Moses Mendelssohn says to, to, um, to Rabbi Landau, to the Nota Yehuda, he says, you are the Nota Yehuda, known amongst the Jews, he says, and I am Noda Bagoyan. I am well known among all the non-Jews. So that's yeah. the that's the story. Rabbi Landau. That's a that's a it's it's a funny story that that uh, that, that that the rabbi would say that about himself. But what's interesting is the Noida Yehuda. There's so many stories. See, many stories about him. He was a, a genius, a righteous man, and a tremendous leader trying to remember some stories that I've heard. Uh, it's not coming to me right now, but just amazing, amazing stories. He was um, a special guy, but halachically also a Jewish legal expert. And his responses are still studied to this day. And um, yeah. I'll we, tell you what his descendant did. He retired from, hold from on, the rabbinate. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But Mendelssohn was saying that about Rabbi Mendelssohn was saying about himself. He was saying yeah. that you're Naida Yehuda, you're known amongst the Jews. I'm Naida, I'm Naida Bagayim, I'm known amongst the nations. So that was him saying about himself that he was, you know, he had taken a different direction. Um, again, I'm not sure this is, it's, it's well, he, he was self He was self Yeah, he was being self deprecating. He was being self deprecating, but it's an interesting story. Yeah. Um, okay. And but, he, but anyway, just really yeah. quick, but what his descendant did was so similar to what the original Naida Yehuda did. Um, he retired from the rabbinate as an emeritus and got a, a doctorate in psychology and started a foundation. And the rest of his life, he dealt with adults that were having midlife crises, especially in their work and counseled people uh, for the rest of the rest of his life. So he was really so special. I, and, and I think it kind of ties into tonight's class, right? Which is we start work or we start something and then it. Right. It, you it, don't it, have to. Yeah. Oh, but but, that, uh, but Pirkei also says, mitzvah bali adcha tach mitzvah. Right. So grab, grab the you mitzvah. get an opportunity for a mitzvah, go do it as soon as possible. Yeah. And I need to mention one more thing that I forgot to mention in the class. 
Remember the context of this conversation. Moses is speaking to the people shortly before his passing, the people who are going to go into the land. And, and, and understand the, uh, the subtle, like what we would call the, um, the background of this. Right? Think of the background. The reason why they were delayed 40 years is because that original generation dropped the ball with the sin of the spies, right? They dropped the ball. They didn't finish the job. They didn't go in or else they would have been in by now. They dropped the ball and only the next generation got in. Moses says to this generation, don't drop the ball and pass it to someone else. You get the job done once and for all, make it happen. All right. Any questions, comments? Good. Made sense? Yes. Yes. Checking Rabbi, one, one quick yes, question. Steve. Yes. Um, now, with respect to who gives who gives the credit, yes. we, we, we're talking about credit is given. With respect to a mitzvah, it is Hashem that gives the credit, clearly. Right, right. yes. And so yes. As, as humans, and even uh, rabbinic edict, it's still as humans, what gives us the right to... Uh, say what Hashem will do. Good, excellent question. Uh, yes, Good. I admit it's oral Torah. Yeah, and and so we could say that it was handed down by Moses. So, but is there a different answer to that to my question? I, I I like your question. In other words, your question is pleasure mark. Your question is who are we to say who this one gets what that one gets it? It's a good question. I don't know. If somebody asked me, I would say I don't know. What we did tonight is explore what what the great rabbi said. How did they know? I think that's your question. They had their sources. They had their ways of knowing. I don't know. But but the the, the objective here is um, to tell you what it says in the books. Your question is, how to, where does, where's the source? I'm sure if we look through the responsa, they would have probably some verses or some Talmudic passages that speak to these ideas, you know, some more original sources that kind of point in this direction. I'm sure that it's not just, you know, uh, a thought uh, that somebody came up with. I'm sure it's grounded in some elements of scripture and some elements of source of, I was about to say sorcery, but not sorcery, sources. Um, that would be something else, different class. Uh, <laughs> Rabbi, I have a question. Hold on one second. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The real estate law would, would be the same today. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and by the, it's not a theoretical question. It's a practical question, right? Somebody says, hey, I see your house is for sale. I know a guy. And then you're like, oh, interesting. And then you tell your agent that name and the first guy says, hey, I gave you that idea. According to halacha, you, not the full commission, but the person that gave the idea deserves something because now if the agent, if you had the idea already beforehand or the agent had the idea and you didn't need that idea, it was superfluous. That's one thing. But if you use that idea, if it was an integral part of the final deal, that's why, right, right, right. Yeah, Bert's saying that's why they have written contracts. Yeah. But even in absence of a written contract, we got to do what's right. Yeah. 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 Right. So Dorina's saying that her son um, in real estate, so when there's a call that comes into the office on a Shabbos or a holiday for him, but somebody else deals with it because it's on a Jewish holiday. So do they both get something? They both get something. Because, right. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, these are real questions. Um, Adina Malka, you had a question. Cool. Would you um, give me a recap on Moses? Um, he brought the bones out. Are you saying he didn't get the credit? 
Yeah, I, I, you know, I kind of flew through that. So thanks for asking that. So let me just explain and hopefully clarify. So essentially, Moses was the one who carried the bones out of Egypt and was the one kind of overseeing it. And yet the Jewish people get the credit and not Moses in the verse in Joshua. And the question is why? And the answer is because Moses didn't finish a job, but he started it. And we said that even if you started, but you were an important part of it, then you should get credit. So the answer, the understanding here is that Moses, although he was part of it, he didn't play a critical role without which it wouldn't have been done. In other words, the definition of getting credit as when you're part of it, the definition of that, the criteria is that without you, it wouldn't have gotten done. Without Moses, it would have, well, I guess there's no exodus, but theoretically, without Moses carrying the bones of Joseph specifically, it still would have been carried by the people. The people would have done it. They actually were considering doing it themselves, but then when they saw Moses, they said, well, why, who, which one of us is greater than Moses? Let's, let's let Moses carry it because that will be the greatest honor for Joseph to have Moses carry it. But it's not like without Moses, it wouldn't have been done. Whereas, so in that case, when it's not an integral part, yes, he carried them, he carried the bones initially, but it, it could have happened without him. It didn't need him to happen. Therefore, he doesn't get the credit. Again, who am I to say he doesn't get the credit? I'm just sharing what the Talmud says, what Rashi says. These, these are the sources that talk about it. Um, but anyway, yeah. But he couldn't finish the job because he was. I know, right, because he passed away. Yeah, Liz, I, 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 hear, I hear the question. I hear the question. But it, me, it just, it's telling us, to me, it's a focus less on did Moses get the credit or not, because I revert to what Steve said, which is, who am I to say who got the credit or not? But it's more of a, a more of a of a of a kind of a framework here, that when someone plays a critical role in something, then there's um, then they play a critical role. When it didn't need them to happen, then it's less of a critical role. So the message for us is play a critical role, get the job done, and uh, and experience it. Okay, all right. I'm gonna close it out. It's great to see you all. Um, have a wonderful evening. We'll see you, please God, soon. A few things to mention. Thank you. A few things to mention. Number one. Um, number one is uh, we have Daily Power Parsha Thursday and Friday. Sunday is our in-town Jewish Academy barbecue. We could call it first annual or not first annual barbecue on the belt line. We have incredible food, and it's going to be a lot of fun with good friends from our IJ community. So join me at 5 p.m. on Sunday for our summer southern barbecue that's right here at chabad on the belt line in the back of the building right adjacent to the belt line so that's sunday and then next week the uh the classes continue take a look for the new the new series that we're starting we have one called 60 days we have a jewish scribal workshop we have a chauffeur workshop that we're about to announce it might be up on the website already so take a look at all the good stuff and don't forget to sign up and share it with your friends okay we'll see you guys Take care. Lila Tov. Have a good night, everybody. Bye.